week eight. Uh, we're making a shift this morning to uh, the New Testament, which is where we will continue for the next three weeks, I think, after this. I think that's right. Uh, well, let me, uh, let me pray for us, and we will look at the gospel of the kingdom. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you that we can celebrate the resurrection of your son. Thank you for all that that means even for uh, our mission in the world. Thank you that it is the, uh, the climax, the, epi- the epitome, the high point of your mission uh, to rescue and redeem us, your people, and your world that you've made. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, continue to help us to celebrate and rejoice today, even as we study your word together now, and as we uh, continue to celebrate throughout the day, whether that means uh, going to worship at 11 or uh, feasting uh, today. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Quick review where we've been. Uh, We've made uh, some big claims uh, this spring uh, as to what mission is and the role that it plays uh, as a theme in the Bible. We said that actually the entire Bible is about mission. We said the Bible is obviously about Jesus, but the question then is, what about Jesus? Uh, and, and obviously it's about His mission. Jesus came on a mission to rescue, to seek, and save the lost, and He came to reveal who God is. So what Ryan and I have been saying for the last eight weeks is that uh, the Bible from start to finish is a story of God's mission in the world. And, of course, we see uh, that mission most clearly in Jesus, but to this point, every week, we've been looking at various Old Testament passages, significant chunks of the Old Testament and themes or um, historical occurrences that that point in big ways to God's mission in the world. Uh, This week, then, we're going to turn to the New Testament and speak specifically about Jesus. So the objective big picture for this class has been to see that everything that God does is about furthering His mission in the world, everything that He does. And what that means then for us is that our lives as individuals and as a church are completely wrapped up in this mission. It has everything to do with who we are as the people of God. And so we've said that, that mission isn't some sort of add-on activity that we do. It's, more, it's better described as the heart of who we are as the people of God. So mission is not something the church does as much as it is something that the church is as a missional community. And so that, that mission is at the heart of who we are. So that quote from Wright that we've looked at most weeks, fundamentally our mission, if it is biblically informed and validated, means our committed participation as God's people, at God's invitation and command, in God's own mission, within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. So, quick review here. We started by saying that mission actually begins with God Himself, within the Godhead. Uh, The the Trinity is within, or I could say it this way, God is missional within the Godhead. So you have all three persons of the Trinity moving towards one another in this self-giving love. We're created then to show forth that love... And specifically in creation, we're made in the image of that God of love. And uh, we're to show forth what He's like in the world. And then we've traced God's mission through the promise of Abraham. And then Ryan, the last three weeks, uh, has talked some about Moses in the tabernacle, and then David in the temple, and then last week with the exilic prophets and how God's mission continues in exile. So, today, the coming of Jesus. We're going to spend two weeks on Jesus in mission, which maybe should be more than that. 
But when I say that, we're going to spend it specifically in the Gospels for the next couple of weeks. Um, and I want you to notice, too, that we're going to be seeing the resolution this week and next of much of what we've talked about all semester. And Ryan and I have both each week still tied in uh, Jesus, of course, to these particular themes in the Old Testament that we've been looking at. So you'll see some of that sort of coming to a head and coming together as we look at the Gospels. So, uh, as an introduction today, we're going to, uh, one of the specific ways that I want to apply this this week is to talk some about mercy ministry. So, given that, today's, uh, that today is the, resur- or the Easter, not the resurrection, it is Easter. Uh, so, what does the resurrection have to do with mercy ministry? Some thoughts on that, and that might be a bit of an odd question. What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with mercy ministry? Yeah, go ahead, David. Mercy ministry seeks to restore, um, it seeks to bring life where there is none and where it's lacking. Yeah. That's uh, motivated by the resurrected idea of hope. Yes. Yeah, so David said that um, mercy is work of restoration, of bringing life where there is not life. And so in some ways it's, it's in continuity with the resurrection. It's the same kind of, uh, of, of work. And then he also mentioned that it is the motive for our mercy ministry, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. What else? Yes. Yeah, that's great. So uh, that, that's kind of it was Darwin's second point this morning, some, and that this is the, the forgiveness that we receive, this, um, the salvation that is guaranteed by what we see in the resurrection. That there, it, it, ver- it, um, it shows that God's work, uh, that Jesus' work on the cross was uh, fully sufficient. And so as we've received that mercy, then we are those who become ambassadors of that mercy and those who extend mercy. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, I think, too, you know, when we think about the resurrection, we've been trying to say, we say around here quite often that it's not just a spiritual resurrection that we undergo, but a physical one. And when the Lord himself says that, behold, I'm making all things new, he's not just talking about merely our bodies and our souls re- reuniting, but he, he's, you know, Darwin said the world right now, as it sits, is in a, is in a wheelchair waiting to get up. And so that means that all of our systems, that means all of our healthcare systems, all our educational systems, that all spheres are being, um, they're being remade, they're being renewed, and in light of that, therefore, insofar as mercy touches upon one of those areas, that uh, the resurrection has a bearing on how, on the oughtness of how we ought to proceed as resurrection hmm. people. Great, yes. Yeah, so the, these... Um this mercy ministry that we would participate in this world that Jesus is making new becomes these um, signs in some ways that point forward to what will be permanently one day. Uh, they serve as this foretaste as well. So we get to see this is what uh, the, the, 
the uh, restoration that's taking place is a foretaste of the full and final restoration. And then also, as Ryan said, there's this, we serve as this uh, agent of God's work in the world where new creation continues to make its way out, which is the work of the Spirit in which we participate, which is incredible to think about. And that applies specifically to mercy ministry. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Those are great, great thoughts. Well, so here's what I want to do this morning. I've got uh, this focus for us. Uh, we're going to do. We're going to do this. So we're going to say this: Jesus comes proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and He calls us to participate in His kingdom ministry in word and deed. Two quick comments on this. One is that we're going to be emphasizing deed ministry. Ryan will talk more next week about word ministry. We could just as easily talk about word ministry this week, but we've tried to. Uh, have different emphasis, uh, different emphasis each week. The other thing is that uh, what I'm going to focus on is sort of everything leading up to the cross and resurrection. <laughs> so Ryan will talk more about that next week. Uh, it's There's no kingdom without the cross, as one theologian says. So I want to say that up front, and maybe we should have rethought where the dates hit with it being Easter Sunday and all that, but we didn't. So we're going to talk really about Jesus' ministry leading up to that. First, I want to start with this, the expectation of the kingdom. So we've been studying the Gospel of Mark this semester that's concluding this morning. Does anybody remember what the first words of Jesus' public ministry are in Mark's Gospel? I know that's a kind of a dirty question to ask. To make. See, yeah, if you guys were paying attention to Ryan, you'd know this. It's... Uh, completely uh, appropriate to look at it in the Bible, too. It's okay. What does he say? It's in the first chapter. Time is fulfilled, and what? The kingdom of God is at hand. He goes on to then say, repent and believe in the gospel. Next question then, how does Jesus define the kingdom of God in his ministry? Yeah. Well, this is actually a trick question because he never, he never uh, defines it completely. I mean, we could definitely say, yes, these things based on his ministry, which is what we're going to do. But I intended for it to be a bit of a trick question because Jesus doesn't come out and say, this is what I mean by the kingdom of God. And that's really important for us. Uh, I, what most say about that is that the reason he doesn't say, this is what I mean by the kingdom of God, is because everybody would have known what he meant when he said the kingdom of God. That was so much a part of the, uh, the hope of Israel they, they wanted and longed for the kingdom of God to come in all of its fullness. And so he didn't have to say, this is what I mean by this. Uh, and Mark didn't need to explain to his audience what it meant. He'll say later some of what his ministry looks like as kingdom ministry. But to say, what is the kingdom of God isn't something that he defines specifically in that way. So the hope of Israel at this point is that the world was going to be made right when the heir of David's throne was, was seated on that throne again. Israel was going to be, the, the, uh, in an obvious way to all surrounding nations, God's chosen people. 
uh, that was going to be this sign that, they, that, that things were made right again. So what I want to do for just a second here is give a brief overview of this kingdom theme throughout the Bible and how they would get there, okay? Real quickly, starts with creation. Uh, Ryan talked in a great way about how the uh, creation story shows forth, uh, really is modeled on the temple as well. It kind of goes the other way, too, in that uh, creation shows itself in the temple building later on. Um, but think about the, the royal overtones of the creation story. You have God creating the world as his kingdom over which he's uh, shown to be the sovereign king. He has these kingly declarations as he speaks things into existence. And then at the end in Genesis 2, he's actually pictured as this conquering king who sits down and rests on the seventh day and enjoys this world that is his as king. He's ruling and reigning and is seated on the throne. And then, in creating uh, humans on the sixth day, prior to that seventh day, humanity is created in his royal image. Right? They're called to rule and subdue. So they have this royal task, and it's going to be through that royal task that they show the world what God is like. So that there's this, this king, kingdom theme that is there in creation. Then the fall. Uh, rather than worshiping God as king, Adam and Eve instead try to be kings themselves. They try to assert their independence of God, and sin uh, has continued in that, in that pattern. That's what sin looks like, is trying to be king in place of God. So then we get to redemption in Israel. We looked at the promise to Abra- Abraham, initially promised to Abram before his name's changed. And what I want us to notice about this is that that promise was a, a promise to restore the kingdom of blessing. Over and over again in that promise, and we looked at that that particular week, he says that you will be blessed, uh, you will be blessed in order to be a blessing. He uses that word, I think, six times in those three verses. And that's supposed to bring our minds back to the creation account, where this was a blessed state. God saw that it was good. He blessed the third day, etc., etc. And so there's this promise of restoration, even in the promise to Abram. So I've got this quote from... um, from Von Roberts. The covenant with Abraham is a promise of the kingdom of God. God's people, Abraham's descendants, in God's place, the promised land, under God's rule and therefore enjoying his blessing. It is a promise to reverse the effects of the fall. So then we fast forward here to uh, God's covenant with Moses. We see that the people of God, Israel, as they're constituted as a kingdom, as a, as a people, as a nation, they're called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Exodus 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So already some kingdom themes there that continue to show themselves. And then fast forward to David, we could do some with judges and even the desire for a king leading up to uh, Saul skip that for now. Uh, this promise then comes to David. 2 Samuel 7. This is, again, the hope of Israel. This is how God is going to deal with sin in the world and deal with His rebellious people. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we know this doesn't end well, right? Israel rebels, goes into exile. Ryan talked about it last week. But what I want us to see here is that the hope of Israel is a kingly hope. It's a hope for a kingdom with God reigning again as king through, his, uh, through some earthly king. So that's, that's some of their expectation. And they had these two really uh, particular images that drove this expectation. One was Messiah, the, the anointed one. So they're hoping for this Messiah. And this took all kinds of different shapes. There's, it's actually really interesting to study uh, the, the intertestamental period after the Old Testament ends leading up to Jesus' coming. And you get all kinds of wild expectations that people had for who this Messiah was going to be and what he would be doing in the world. We'll talk a little bit about some of those. Um, so there were different images of it, but there, there were these consistent themes of this Messiah or anointed one and then one of a king. And these are a couple places we could look at a lot of them where we can see this. But Psalm 2, and I want you to notice the connection here between anointed and king. So verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So, even this term son has these royal overtones to it. Um, kings were called sons of God. So what they meant was not that they were um, metaphysically or ontologically the son of God, like Jesus was the son of God, was and is the son of God, but that they had this royal status uh, that, that, was a, uh, that, that was divine in some way because of it. So, so even that term has these kingly overtones for it. Here's then the hope of the Messiah, the anointed one in Isaiah 9. Again, notice connection between anointing and ruling, reigning, and uh, kingly language here. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So again, strong connection between this anointed one and this king. Then son of man, or even, uh, even more kingly language. Jesus comes on the scene calling himself the son of man. That's what he referred to himself as over and over again. And there's a rich Old Testament background to that, which informed this expectation that they had of him being a deliverer, a conquering king. The best place uh, to look to this is uh, Daniel 7, where this language comes from. Here's what's said. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, dominion, glory, kingdom, language. And then a quote from Bartholomew and Goheen that summarizes this. The image that best captured Israel's expectation was the kingdom of God. Israel looked to a day when there would be no king but God. God would return to the temple and would once again come to dwell among the people. That's Malachi 3.1. 
The nation would be liberated from its bondage to pagan oppressors. The Messiah would sweep away the rule of Caesar and of his puppet kings and priests in Israel and set things right under God's rule. So this is why, and this makes a lot of sense of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels for us. This is why you get these, uh, it, it's, we can get frustrated and kind of throw the disciples under the bus because they have these militaristic kind of conquering views of what Jesus was going to be doing. They're constantly trying to thrust him into the limelight so that he can take over as king. And it's because this is where they were coming from. I mean, you can see how easily this could be misunderstood, where they think, uh, in order for Israel to be in the proper place, for God to be king again, we've got to get rid of Caesar. We've got to overthrow this. And so that was part of why they continue to want Jesus to do that. We know that the way that the kingdom comes is ultimately through this uh, paradoxical way of defeat on the cross and then resurrection in, in glory. Um, but you see, so you get these different groups of the Israelites. I mean, this is some of what, um, this was the expectation of the Pharisees where they were trying to intensify the law so that then the, uh, the, the kingdom would come in this way. You've got the, the Qumran community where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. They separate, they go out away from everything and saying this is going to be the way that the king comes. You get the Sadducees who are sort of the liberals of the day that say we don't need the resurrection of the dead to come. We're in positions of power and prominence now. Let's not mess with this. And then you get the Zealots who are these military... Uh, rebels, these insurrectionists who were looking and plotting for ways to literally overthrow the government. And everybody wants Jesus to fulfill these expectations in some way. And so when he starts saying he's not going to do it that way, he gets a lot of pushback for it. Um, so I, I just want us to see that this is, the, this is the situation into which Jesus comes in his ministry. And so when he says that the kingdom of God is at hand in Mark 1 people's ears perk up. This is like, okay, this is it. This is really happening now. This is what we've been longing for. Yeah, go ahead, Martin. Yeah, yes, you've got... Um, well, I mean, even the story of, um, you, you had multiple uh, messiahs, people who were there, in, I should say messiahs, um, those to whom Israel was looking who would leave, or lead military revolts um, leading up to the time of Jesus. And so that's where even with the Hanukkah, with Hanukkah uh, coming about, that was in the midst of one of these attempts of overthrowing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and so th- this was a common pattern. That's why, again, it's important to know that uh, as to why they're thinking, well, Jesus is here. And again, why his death and his resurrection is such a big deal, because when they see Jesus hung on the cross, they say, okay, we've seen, we- we've seen this, this movie before. We know how this ends. This was a guy who came proclaiming the kingdom of God. This was going to be it, and he got himself killed. Now, obviously, the uh, pretty significant difference is that he rose. <laughs> he rose from the dead which nobody else did. Uh, but yeah, so th- this was a common, this was a repeated pattern um, uh, in Israel's history that was happening. But the, the important thing to see is that, that God's mission, that what they were right about is that God's mission is a kingdom mission. 
That's what needs to happen. Um, God needs to be in this place of ruling and reigning as king again. So that's the expectation. Jesus comes on the scene. Preparation for the kingdom. I just want to, I'm going to point out the kingly, these kingly themes here. In his baptism, uh, in Mark 1, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him, anointing him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And you see, I've got this on our sheet. Two hugely important points. As we're thinking about the anointed Messiah and this King. Jesus is commissioned and equipped with God's Spirit in accord with Isaiah 61. So the Spirit descends on Him. He's the anointed one. Everybody's uh, eyes wide at this. Okay, I see what's being said here. And then this voice says, You are my beloved Son. That's echoed again at the transfiguration that we looked at a few weeks back where Jesus is then identified as Israel's anointed king. He's the true son of David, David in fulfillment of, uh, of Psalm 2. So again, son of God, significant language. Um, Jesus' temptation. Um, we're not going to look at this now for the sake of time. <clears throat> That's in Matthew, Matthew 4 and Luke 4 in the substantial versions of it. Here, here's the point with that. All the temptations that Satan offers Jesus are temptations to become king in ways apart from the cross. That's the big, big takeaway from that. Um, he could be shown forth to be a, this popular one who provides bread for everybody. I take these stones, turn them to bread. Uh, he, he could be the, the wonder worker who can uh, throw himself down and survive. He could become king that way and become famous and well-known and, and maybe take over in this kind of revolutionary way. Or he could be the violent sort of revolutionary. He bows down to Satan, which is the temptation, the last temptation given. And Satan says, I'll give you all this. You can be king over all this. The big thing is that in all those, obviously, they're, they're, uh, they're, the temptation is to avoid the way of the cross, the way that Jesus will actually bring the kingdom. And so again, to say there's no kingdom without the cross. There's no kingdom without the cross. So Jesus, in, in both of these ways, he's prepared for and equipped for this kingdom mission. He comes on the scene and says, uh, as we've mentioned here in Mark 1, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying the time is fulfilled. All these expectations, all that this time is finally here that we've all been waiting for. And the kingdom of God is at hand or is near. Kingdom's here. Now, in response to that, I'm giving you these two commands. Repent and believe in this message. Believe into this gospel message, this good news. And a huge point as to what even gospel means. And I've got this quote for you from Bartholomew and Goheen. The Greek word here for good news is the word commonly used in that culture for the kind of announcement that brings great joy. It might be news of a wedding, the birth of a son, or a military victory. Jesus announces the good news that God's power to save the creation has arrived. And so... Um, as is mentioned there, a conquering king would do this too, where they would send out these messengers ahead to other parts of the land that, that the victory had been won. And so that's the picture of these ambassadors, these, um, um, these, those who would proclaim the king. I'm missing a word there. Um, that, that would then uh, speak these words of victory, this good news that Jesus is Lord, that he now reigns. And there are other ways. I mean, Caesar would use the same kind of language, that he was Savior, uh, that it was the gospel of, uh, 
of Caesar as well. And so for Jesus to come saying, no, there's a different gospel. This is genuinely good news. Or I really will uh, make this world right and bring about uh, a peace that, uh, that Caesar couldn't, of course, with his peace of Rome. So he's this long-awaited uh, Davidic king who's going to come rescue God's people and fulfill God's promise to Abraham. And then, this is where we'll spend the rest of our time, uh, the enactment and ministry of the kingdom. He, he shows forth this kingdom in word and deed. So this is where this, this missional aspect comes into play for us. He comes speaking the words of the kingdom, announcing it, and he comes enacting it as well. So word and deed, both are equally important. Both are, reveal uh, the kingdom. There's a simple statement of this uh, in Matthew's gospel, uh, verse 423. He went, in, he went uh, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So you've got this teaching and this proclaiming and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So this word and deed happening here. So I'm going to shift here to just focusing on on deed ministry. So a few purposes of these miracles and these healings, because that can be a little mysterious for us as well. Sometimes they are there to to verify the authenticity of Jesus' words. So he performs this miracle that kind of bears witness to what he's just spoken of. Say, okay, we have good reason to listen to this guy because he just healed this guy, right? The second reason could be that, that he's, it's showing forth that uh, it's testifying to the authority that he has as king. So over and over again, there's talk of authority in his miracles, uh, that, that he can just speak words and things happen. Uh, cast out this demon and it goes into these pigs, right? He can calm a storm just by speaking. It shows he's got this authority that only a king can have. But then this third reason is the one that uh, is uh, found in this quote, which is helpful when we think about even resurrection and new heavens, new earth, and the full coming of the kingdom of God in its final form. Uh, it says this, this, These miracles are like windows through which we catch glimpses of a renewed cosmos, from which Satan and his demons have been cast out. Sickness and pain are to be no more. Death itself will be gone forever, and the creation restored to its original beauty, and harmony. So this is some of what David was mentioning at the beginning, the connection between resurrection or new creation and mercy ministry. There's, there's continuity for us in that. These become these windows through which we can see what will ultimately uh, one day be. So uh, turn, to, turn with me to Luke 4. You can use your pew Bible there if you'd like. I want to just look at Jesus' announcement there. Look at um, 16 to 21. Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. So he comes in, he takes, this, uh, he takes this scroll. He's going to become one who's a teacher in this moment. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This comes from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to pro- proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." 
He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You can just picture what's happening here. And verse 21, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's when things get a little tricky. Because um, that's a big statement to make, right? It's one thing to stand up and read from the prophet, just like these other teachers would have done at the time. But then to say, actually, this is fulfilled now. Um, what, take a look at, his, at that specific quote from Isaiah 61. How is Jesus' ministry described? How does Jesus describe his own ministry? What does he describe his mission as in this particular passage? Throw some things out there. Yeah, mercy. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, specifically, what, what are the, uh, those aspects that we would tr- uh, regularly call mercy ministry or describe as mercy ministry? Yes, liberty to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind. Yeah, set, setting at liberty those who are oppressed. And then proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, which is this year of, of jubilee, which would be setting free uh, people from being um, enslaved to certain kinds of debt and things that would set them free. It was part of Israel's uh, laws. And then another question here, what's the source of his mission? How is he equipped or enabled to, to accomplish these tasks? Yeah, the Spirit, hugely important for us. Um, that this very same source or uh, the, the one who would equip Jesus to do this, to do these things, is the same Spirit that we now have as well. The same way in which we would be equipped not to perform the exact same things where we're you know, literally recovering sight to the blind, but in continuing Jesus' ministry of deed, we also are equipped with that same Spirit, which makes a huge difference in how we would approach actually doing uh, mercy ministry. You know, we have five minutes left. I was going to turn to the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, but let's just do this. Let's just have some discussion over mercy ministry generally. Um, and maybe this could be somewhat of a lead into into next week. Uh, a few questions. One, I'm making an assumption here. Uh, and the assumption is that it's easier for us to view word ministry as, uh, as more important than deed ministry. And maybe we wouldn't explicitly say that, but in terms of uh, where our time and emphasis uh, goes, we might go towards uh, word ministry rather than deed. So, um, why do you think that's the case? Why, why do we struggle to see deed ministry as vitally important to a, to a holistic view of kingdom ministry, of the gospel of the kingdom? What do you all think? Okay, yeah, Martin said it could take us uh, significantly out of our comfort zone um, to be doing mercy ministry. Let's, why, why is that? Why, why does mercy ministry... That's actually the third question I wanted to talk about. Thank you for that. Um, why does mercy ministry make us uncomfortable? Maybe... Sorry. It's messy. It's messy. How so? How is it messy? Yeah. Uh, yes, you might be out something that you'll never get back. Yeah. 
so Janet has said there's ways that uh, people might not be uh, uh, very welcoming in how they would receive the uh, attempt at showing mercy. Um, they, they might, you might get taken advantage of. We're talking about material uh, uh, aspects here where maybe you've put particular money into something or certainly your time and you see that you, there's the risk of getting taken advantage of in that. Yeah, yeah, Jacob. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's fear to it. Yeah, that um, maybe you're going to be in situations uh, with people that you aren't typically around, and that can be a, a scary thing. And what if maybe you can't, what if they do respond poorly or something? This could get weird and uh, uncomfortable for me. I don't like that. Yeah, Janet, will you follow up on that? socialistic in their mercy ministry and not very spiritual. Yeah. And that they had thrown away that part in order to feel good about doing good for others. So we... Yeah, so I that... Mean, that's yes, really that's... I'm... Yes. Yeah, so there... With the, um, with the social gospel movement and what has taken hold in uh, some mainline denominations and churches is that there would be this... Uh, it's deed ministry at the expense of word ministry. We're not doing that anymore. We're just going to do this kind of social gospel thing. And so, yeah, we think, well, we want to hold on to the word too. And does it mean if we go this to over here that are we going to do that as well? Yes, Ricky. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Uh, Ricky said that... Um, it's inconvenient. It takes us out of our routines and schedules. And that's what we would have seen. That's a big time in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where you see the priest and the Levite pass by, and then the Samaritan who has his entire, his whole next couple days thrown off because of the way in which he shows mercy to this person who is in need. Yes, that's a huge one and a reason that certainly it is a struggle for us. Yeah, Martin. Yeah, yeah. So going back to even, uh, I mean, talk about the cost of things in the midst of um, in the midst of uh, desegregation. There were real physical, real physical danger for those participating in mercy and justice ministry in those ways, where there was a danger of being physically harmed. It wasn't like it wasn't something that was just a inconvenient social situation, but one in which. Uh, was the stakes were much much higher? Yeah, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Admitting that. We need mercy. We need to be shown mercy in certain ways. Is really can be really uncomfortable and might make us hesitant towards others. Yeah, Tim, go ahead. I think a lot of us realize as much as we do, it's not enough. Yeah. There's too much to do besides Yeah, yeah, and that that can be profoundly discouraging. Yeah, Craig Clint. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, wanting to bring, yeah, wanting to bring that word aspect to bear as well to holistically care for a person. Yeah, go ahead, David. This will be, we'll wrap it up here. This. I think the biggest thing is that it's such a significant commitment long-term if we're actually going to understand people's actual needs as opposed to what is at face value, the needs we think they have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. David's emphasizing the long-term nature of genuinely loving somebody, um, the long-term character of genuinely showing mercy, um, and that's hard for us. Yeah. So Jesus uh, comes bringing uh, the kingdom both in word and deed, and so next week Ryan will talk about ministry of word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that uh, we can come to you as needy people, uh, those who must have your mercy, and we thank you that you've shown us mercy in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would, that you would move us uh, outward into the lives of uh, those around us who are in need of mercy, uh, that we would love well, and that we would recognize our complete dependence upon you, and that uh, we'd see that it is the work of your Spirit, first and foremost, that's going to bring about any change in our world and in the lives of those people around us. Uh, Lord, uh, convict us and encourage us in this way, we pray. And we pray this through Jesus, the one who has shown us mercy. Amen.